According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are in the midst of uh, Philippians chapter 2, so join me there. Philippians chapter 2, grumbling and disputing. A couple of uh, interesting word studies to look at those and tracking, of course, the... uh, issues involved, particularly since we have such a comprehensive Old Testament illustration with the Exodus, with uh, the wilderness generation there, the Exodus generation first, and then the wilderness generation, and uh, the example whereby with most of them God was not well pleased, and how they fell in the wilderness, and how the wrath of God came upon a body of redeemed people. And that's, uh, that's the, uh, the prime application, and we're warned about it in Philippians, we're warned about it over and over again in, in Hebrews. So you're going to get it for two hours this morning in, uh, in our Philippians hour and in our Hebrews hour. But the, uh, the Exodus generation is the eternal example of that. And, and because it is in the Scriptures, we have the example, we have a double accountability to learn from their negative example and not imitate them and then to obey the Scriptures that, uh, that make these things so very clear. So Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that And there's a purpose clause, and there's a consequence, and there's a benefit. And we'll see this both in time and in eternity. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. All of that is the consequence of not grumbling. Okay? So... Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's a short enough imperative. That's a short enough uh, application to be made. But you look at the consequences that are spelled out in verses 15 and 16, and they're pretty thorough, both in time and in eternity, as we look forward to the coming day of Christ. And uh, oh, that it were today. All right. Well, God is spirit. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth in preparation for our study of the word of God this morning. We need to begin, as always, with a word of prayer. Why do we do that? We open with a word of silent prayer that gives each one of us an opportunity, first of all, if we're carnal. I don't know why you come to church if you're carnal, but sometimes you, uh, the traffic on the way to church can make you carnal. 183 is legendary for that, or I-35. But even beyond that, uh, aspects of carnality are simple enough. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So with, you got that confession opportunity. But beyond that, even if you're not carnal, there still is the humility aspect whereby we humble ourselves. We take off our shoes metaphorically. We're on holy ground metaphorically. We humble ourselves before the Lord and ask Him to implant that word before us. So shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the blessings we have to assemble together. We thank you for the cleansing procedure, Father, how simple it is to confess our sins, to be restored to fellowship. We thank you, Father, for um, the uh, truth of your word and the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Uh, Father, for the church age in which we live, uh, uh, there's been nothing like it before. There won't be anything like it afterwards. This, uh, this unique dispensation in which we operate where every believer priest is permanently indwelled by God the Holy Spirit. Thank you for that, Father. Thank you for the teaching ministry that he fulfills uh, internally within our soul. As the word of God goes forth, we combine spiritual with spiritual. 
the Holy Spirit is uh, the transmitter and the Holy Spirit is the receiver. Uh, Father, it is uh, just a marvelous program you put into place. So we call upon your faithfulness this morning to open the eyes of our understanding, to open the ears of our hearing, to open our hearts, Father, that we might receive the word implanted that's able to save our souls. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so uh, in this outline for Work Out Your Salvation with Fear and Trembling, we have main point four, which is the uh, the opposite, the antithesis of fear and trembling is grumbling and disputing. So clearly we want a major in the, the fear and trembling side of things and we want to completely avoid the grumbling and disputing side of things. And that becomes a red flag for us when we catch ourselves grumbling or when our wife catches us grumbling or when our children catch us grumbling or whoever it is that catches us grumbling we catch ourselves grumbling, just stop right there and and recognize, you know what? I need to work on my fear and trembling. I am not fear and trembling enough. Uh, And that's uh, the issue here. Imitating Israel is instant infamy. Let's look at this again and then we're going to go back to the Old Testament. But 1 Corinthians 10 spells it out. And it's curious to me, uh, among all the parallels between Philippians and 1 Corinthians, we discussed this uh, when you consider that perhaps the traditional dating for the prison epistles is not accurate. Perhaps the origin of Rome in the Acts 26 uh, imprisonment, maybe that's not uh, when the prison epistles were written. Maybe it has an, an Ephesian imprisonment. Maybe it has the, uh, the third missionary journey in Acts chapter 20 might be the better setting for the book of Philippians. And so you see that that was the setting for writing 1 Corinthians and it's the setting for writing Philippians. It's the setting for writing Colossians and, and Ephesians and Philemon. Uh, a lot of other details come together including uh, really Paul's emphasis on the Exodus and on uh, the fact that uh, with most of them God was not well pleased. And so we see it here in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 6 through 11, but the background is verses 1 through 5. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And so this is talking about Israel on a corporate basis, talking about the fact that maybe they weren't all believers, but they all left Egypt, all right? Every last one of them was, was redeemed out of their, out of their bondage. And they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. This is who they identified with. He was their deliverer. He was their lawgiver. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness." And so this is what we got to see. And this is, uh, I think this answers a lot of things. And this keeps us from getting prideful. This keeps us from uh, having that, that mentality that, well, I'm saved, so God's automatically happy with me. And those unbelievers, God's automatically mad at those guys, and I'm better than them. And uh, he should be, his wrath should be applied to those heathens, those pagans, those unbelievers. Clearly, they, they, they deserve God's wrath. And, uh, and, uh, all these prideful expressions that, that people will voice, or maybe they don't say them out loud, but they're thinking them, all right? Stop. Recognize that the, the, the true displeasure, God ex- doesn't expect, what does God expect from an unbeliever? They do what they do. That's their nature. That's their fallen estate. But for us, the expectation is so much higher. Judgment begins with the house of the Lord. Accountability starts here. We have, to whom much is given, much shall be required. And that's us. 
as the uh, born-again body of believers. So with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we, and then now we have a sampling, it's a survey, that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. And that's the first aspect there, and they had judgment for that. Nor be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they stood up to play. And so there's a second illustration from the Exodus generation. Nor let us fornicate. Let's just get right down to it. That's what the verb's about, okay? That's the, that's the thing. And sometimes they, they uh, I don't know, the, the, the old King James, there's something about Elizabethan English whereby you can just you know, use a word like fornicate, and that just jumps out there. And, and it's, it's not one that you typically have in, in daily conversation. And so it, maybe it has an impact in a way that uh, act immorally. To me, our generation is, is, is damaged by the fact that this term is so watered down. And the idea that moral relativism has just totally uh, put morality versus immorality on kind of a, a wishy-washy scale, a human relative scale. And so acting immorally might lead somebody to think, uh, you know, uh, going five miles over the speed limit or something or, or um, you know, some other kind of, you know, thing, indiscretion or whatever, uh, telling a little white lie because you didn't want to hurt somebody's feelings. And they think, well, okay, yeah, it's immoral, but it's not so bad. Um, anyway, it, that's a pet peeve of mine. The New American Standard's pretty consistent rendering their... Uh, Fornication vocabulary is act immorally, and uh, I don't like it. So let's not fornicate, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. 23,000 fell in one day until Phineas, my hero, uh, great Old Testament, took a spear and he jabbed them both right there in the very act and uh, put an end to that. And uh, good story there. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did. Now, when you're looking at this list and you're seeing, okay, golden calf, idolatry, uh, national fornication, all these things, they seem like big deals, right? And then you get to this grumbling. Well, come on, is that really a big deal? I mean, why are we putting that on the same list with these other things? Well, because it belongs on the same list with all these other things. Nor let us grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. They were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. So we don't want to imitate Israel. There's no excuse. We have all these Bible stories. We have all these examples. We have the doctrine. We have a very strict accountability. And uh, we want to be clear on that. All right. And so uh, subpoints A and B then are the two terms that we're looking at in, in Philippians 2.14. And um, almost completed this slide on Wednesday night. The, uh, the, the noun gongusmos is our noun for a complaint or uh, a grumbling, speaking of the thing itself. The verb gonguzo is the verb. I did fix the typos on this slide, so uh, we should be good there. And... Um, this is John 7, 12 is the noun, ganguzmas, and John 7, 32 is the verb ganguzo. Those had been typos on Wednesday night. <clears throat> the allusions, though, we didn't have time to look at, so I want to take this morning to start there. Let's look at Exodus 16. And really, 
Go through that 1 Corinthians 10 passage and you'll find all the places from Exodus 16 to Exodus 32 to Numbers 11 to Numbers 16. There's a, there's a spectrum of passages there. And we're just going to pick two of them, Exodus 16 and Numbers 14. Let's remember, when we're reading Exodus 16, where are we? We're two chapters past the Red Sea, all right? So these grumblers, these fault finders, they physically walked through the Red Sea. Can you imagine? On dry ground, they walked through. They had a wall of water on the left and on the right. They walked through. And you would think, somebody that experienced something that powerful... And they get to the other side and they look back and then the waters come crashing down and kill all the Egyptians. You would think, wouldn't you, that having experienced something that dramatic, that powerful, that awesome, that that's a God you're going to spend the rest of your life and forever after that serving, worshiping, loving, thankful, you're not going to grumble, right? Because he could have crashed all that water down on you. (laughs) <laughs> if he really wanted you dead. Um, but all this grumbling now is uh, is sad. All right, more than sad. So Exodus 16, verses 7 and following. And, and uh, so they sing a song and they've got uh, worship on the other side in chapter 15. And then chapter 16 starts off, they set out from uh, Elam and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of sin, which is hilarious. That's the Hebrew word. It has nothing to do with our English word sin. It just looks funny. Uh, anyways, between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after the departure from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled. Goodness gracious, that didn't take long. All right, grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the sons of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt. So here they're redeemed, and no sooner are they redeemed than they start having, uh, you know, the nostalgia for days gone by, you know, back in the good old days. Yeah, back when we were slaves. <laughs> okay? Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, like they had it so great back then. They didn't. They were slaves. And they, maybe they sat by pots of meat, but they weren't eating those pots of meat. They were serving those pots of meat to the, you know, to the Egyptians, minus whatever they could steal or swipe or snack along the way. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now, if God really wanted to kill them, starving them to death was kind of a dumb way to do it. Particularly when he already had them at the bottom of the Red Sea. A much easier way to do it was just to dump the Red Sea on them. Or kill them with all those plagues. He hit 10 plagues on Egypt, right? Couldn't he have killed them then if he really wanted them dead? Obviously. So none of this makes sense. And that's the thing. We can read this rationally all day long. And their objections are not rational objections. That's the point. They're spiritual objections. They're irrational, spiritual, emotional, pathetic, grumbling objections. Okay, and uh, and that's what we got to deal with. And so, as pastors, as as husbands, as parents, as leaders, as believers, if we are going to have ministry towards a grumbler, um, are you going to approach that grumbler rationally? 
Okay, well, you may have a tough road ahead of you approaching them rationally, and, and I'm not telling you respond irrationally to their irrational. What I'm saying is, it's a spiritual issue, all right? And so on, on a spiritual basis, the first thing that needs to happen is confession. They've got to be in fellowship. Until they're in fellowship, all the rational, you know, all the, the, the approach you're going to have is, is not going to go anywhere. All right, they got to be in fellowship, which means they've got to be repentant. They got to be broken. They got to confess, and uh, and then you have the basis to renew them with the Word of God. So, anyway, more of this irrational objection here. Um, so the Lord said to Moses, "Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction." And so the provision of manna, not only is it a miracle, not only is it cool, not only is it, wow, isn't this great food every morning, it's just there. But it's also a test. It's also a test for a covenant people to walk and to obey on a day-by-day basis. Give us this day our daily bread, right? And so they have to, they have to go forth and get it. And uh, then on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. And so um, they get together a, a double portion and uh, it doesn't spoil the next morning like it would otherwise. And that this too, by God's design, this is God's miraculous provision. So Moses and Aaron said to the sons of Israel, at evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. At evening you're going to know this. Remember a day starts, is evening and morning. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your grumblings against the Lord. And what are we that you grumble against us. And this is the thing with, with Aaron and Moses, when you're grumbling against spiritual leaders, who are you really grumbling against? Yeah, it's against God, because they, they represent God in, uh, in that position. So, verse 8, Moses said, this will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning. For the Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against Him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. So Moses and Aaron uh, say, uh, then Moses said to Aaron, say to the congregation of the sons of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumblings. And this to me is, is remarkable, that the provision for this is being made, and God is just very patiently saying, all right now, get closer. Get closer, I'm going to provide. You're wrong for what you're doing, but I'm going to provide. Okay? And he does. And uh, it's, a, it's a teaching opportunity. And so, um, so come near. It came about as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel that they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I've heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them saying, at twilight you shall eat meat. In the morning you shall be filled with bread and you shall know that I am the Lord. So here's what, here's what happened. It came about at evening that quails came up and covered the camp. How cool is that? You want meat? Here you go. On demand. This is better than uh, DoorDash even. I mean, it just, there it is. Okay? <laughs> and uh, in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness, there was a fine flake-like thing. Hard to describe, Right? It's a fine flake-like thing as the frost is on the ground. So whatever this fine flake-like thing looked like, tasted like, uh, I've often wondered, to me, I have visions of, of um, 
frosted Pop-Tarts, I think. Especially the brown sugar cinnamon, frosted Pop-Tarts. That's a fine flake-like thing. And when the, when the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, manna, which is Hebrew for what is it? And that's what they named it. They named it, what is it? And they didn't know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. See? And how powerful. What a blessing. And thank you, Lord. Here's our daily bread. You know, I think it's where Tolkien got his idea on the Limbus bread. You know, that, you know, you just take this little bite of Limbus bread and one bite, you're good for a whole day. Anyway. Um... And again, but see, you'll notice there's work to be done. He's providing for them, but they have to go out and gather it, and they have to gather the precise amount, and they have to prepare it. So um, this is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. You shall take an omer, a piece, according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. So you've got a five-person tent, five omers. And the sons of Israel did so, and some gathered much, and some gathered little, And when they measured it with an omer, he who gathered much had no excess, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. It was perfectly, the portion control was there. Moses said to them, let no man leave any of it until morning. Okay, no leftovers. (laughs) No Tupperware, no refrigerators. And uh, and you don't need, why, why would you have leftovers anyway? It's perfectly portioned. It's perfectly sized. It's perfect for every human. An omer of manna, and there you go. <clears throat> but they didn't listen to Moses, and some left part of it until morning. And it bred worms, became foul, and Moses was angry with them. So uh, there you go. Gathered it morning by morning, every man as much as he should eat, but when the sun grew hot, it would melt. And this is uh, more of the procedure there. And then of course, the Sabbath day, don't break the Sabbath, and knuckleheads going out there looking for manna. There's, it doesn't show up on the Sabbath. What are you doing out here looking for the manna? It's not here. You're supposed to get it yesterday. All right, so that's that illusion. And then there's Numbers 14. And uh, in chapter 13, the spies are going into the land. And uh, it's everything God said it was. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And it's got fruit, it's got everything, it's, got, it's rich, it's wealthy. It's the ideal land of promise. Other than, of course, those giants that are living in there. <laughs> God didn't mention them. All right, well, why is that a problem? God mentioned that there were inhabitants there. God mentioned that he was going to drive them out. God mentioned he was going to destroy them. And God promised to give you this land. He was right about everything else, wasn't he? Anyway, the uh, congregation uh, is going to rebel. Ten of the twelve spies give the bad report. And, uh, and so we have the judgment here in, in this chapter. In verses 27 through 29, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? Keep in mind, that's his redeemed people. But he calls them an evil congregation. Uh, in in uh, Revelation, they're called a synagogue of Satan. Okay, Here they're called an evil congregation who are grumbling against me. I've heard the complaints of the sons of Israel which they are making against me. 
And it was not going to be another, gather them all around, I'm going to provide manna for them. Okay? He did that last time. It's not going to be a gather around, I'm going to teach them. Did that last time. How long? See, God is slow to anger, but that doesn't mean that He's never to anger, or that, he, that, that wrath never does fall. It finally does fall, and when it does, this is what they've got to deal with. Verse 28, say to them, as I live, says the Lord. All right, remember this? This is an oath. This is a vow. This is, uh, you know, this is God who swears in His wrath that they shall not enter His rest. This is what we were learning about in, in Hebrews, right? And so the God who cannot lie, why does He have to take a vow? Well, He cannot lie, but He does take a vow, and that reinforces it. It's like double omnipotence, right? Double veracity. It's true and it's under an oath. And not only does he take a vow, he stakes it on his own life. As I live. Right? That's a, I swear on my life. I swear on, you know, which means if I'm lying, you can kill me. That was a real vow in the ancient world. That was a real vow. The, the reason why they, they cut an animal in half and you walked through the, the part, the, the, the animal pieces, because you were willing to, to be ripped in half. You were willing to be executed if you broke your covenant, if you broke your vow. Nowadays, we just, it, we, we, it's, it's, it's silly. Nowadays, it's just a, it's a ditty on a playground. It's, it's cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. Like, who does that, Right. Or uh, we have little ditties. We have a little, if I'm lying, I'm dying. You know, it's just, what is that? We have, it, they're, they're almost, uh, they're just trite. They're throwaway expressions. And I think that's intentional. I think the, fa- the father of lies has so manipulated our culture that the idea of truth versus lies is lost. That even under oath, you can commit perjury under oath and not get impeached. <laughs> or, well, get impeached and not be removed from office. Perjury under oath and not go to prison. See? Anyway, it's staggering to me. But he says, as I live. He takes an oath, says the Lord. Just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Even all your numbered men according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. So the, the penalty for grumbling? They're going to die in the wilderness. Okay, And as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into rest. And that's why it's a warning both in Philippians not to grumble, do all things without grumbling or disputing. It's also a warning in Hebrews that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God that we should be diligent to enter into His rest. So that's the grumbling. Now, on the grumbling side of things, of course, we've got a lot of uh, Old Testament allusions, Old Testament illustrations, very clearly, with the disputing, not so much. In fact, there is no clear Septuagint or Hebrew Old Testament uh, allusion to the disputing thing. And in fact, the only place where we have it is the book of Job where they have a dialogue, where they have a debate, where they have disputes, but they have it amongst themselves because they know, Job's conclusion is, I can't go to heaven and argue my case with God. That I'm not capable of having a dialogue with God. 
And so the, the conclusion to Job is that there, there is no dispute with God. What he says goes, and we can't answer him a word back. And so there really is no clear Septuagint allusion to the, uh, to the, the dialogue rebellion that we have here. All right, the verb for disputing is dia logismos. Dia logismos. And it's, it's where we get the dialogue. It even looks like dialogue in, uh, in that. Logos is a word. Dia uh, has a concept of through. And uh, it's used, the, the dia prefix is used in different ways. Anyway, uh, Strong's number 1261 for the noun. 1260 is the Strong's number for the verb. The verb is dia logizomai. Dia logizomai. Uh, 14 uses on the noun, 16 uses on the verb. And uh, useful to consider because, you know, what's wrong with dialogue? What's wrong with talking it through? What's wrong with, uh, you know... Um, and in particular, if we have logizomai, we, we love logizomai, don't we? Take the, take the dia off and we got a, we got a excellent verb here. Logizomai is our verb to, to reckon, to impute. We have uh, God's righteousness is reckoned to our account. Uh, our sins are reckoned to Jesus' account. And so there's a lot of logizomai that happens in any event. The dia logizomai, the uh, the idea that we're going to answer back, the idea that we're going to we're going to improve upon what he had to say. Now we we have no all we can do is homologeo. All right, we can say the same thing God says. We have a confession, and that's homologeo. And so we make the good confession. We walk according. We have a, a confession of our faith that we hold fast to. Uh, everything that we engage in, if we're going to be faithful to our confession, that's homologeo, that's not dia legizomai. Okay, It's not a dialogue. God revealed His Word and we are accountable to receive it and to live it. To, to, uh, we're not His fellow editors. We're not going to debate it. We're not going to tell Him where He can improve upon it. Okay, Big difference there. It is interesting, and in fact uh, I should have, the color wheel, did I make a clicker on this? I did not. Oh well, I'll show it to you Wednesday night. The uh, the color wheel is interesting because dialogismos is used fourteen times, and of those fourteen times, it has ten different translations. <laughs> so that tells you something right there. That shows you the variety of the of the expressions, the variety of the idioms is highly idiomatic, and depending on context, it can be understood in different ways. Uh, if you have one word in one language, then it takes ten different words in a, in a different language to try to convey the the full sense of of what that original word is and then you know you got a bit of a of a slippery animal there to try to try to get a hold of anyway that's the noun almost uh 10 different ways and yet they're almost always with a negative connotation uh, there's only one or two that could be re- viewed as remotely positive or at least neutral in uh in their use they're almost always with a negative uh connotation Exceptions being Luke two thirty five and and Romans fourteen one. Those are the the exceptions to the rule. Dia legizomai for reason or to discuss, and uh, and you know there's nothing wrong with it as far as it goes. Uh, we are rational beings. We should think logically. We should um, we should be able to discuss things rationally with one another clearly. 
Um, but the idea that I'm going to point out a flaw in God's logic, the idea that I'm going to fix God and His revelation and dispute with Him about His Word or about His plan or about His, his design, uh, that's where I'm off the rails. Okay? And, uh, and this happens when, um, when He places the race before us and instead of running with endurance the race that's set before us, I decide that I'm going to either grumble about it which means I'm going to I'm going to do it but I'm not going to be happy about doing it. I'm going to grumble all the way through or I'm going to argue, I'm going to dispute. I'm going to tell God that it's not right. And I'm going to choose a different path and this is the race he should have set before me. Well, in my wisdom, I'm saying what? I'm saying that test he assigned is is one that I don't need or that that test he assigned is one that I don't want. Whether I want it or not, I need it because it's part of the works laid out beforehand. All right, so um, the two positive examples uh, in Luke 2. And uh, verse 35. And I say it's a positive example. (laughs) I think it's positive. Maybe it's not. So Simeon, uh, they bring the baby Jesus into the temple and Simeon's there waiting to die because he, he's told he can't die until he sees the Christ. And, and we really don't know how old he is and how ready he was to die. But uh, he does see the baby and now he's excited. But Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. And I love that. Does that seem backwards? It's not, you know, it's not Edward Gibbon in the rise and fall of the Roman Empire here. It's the fall and rise. I like that. For the fall and rise of many in Israel for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And so the thoughts from many hearts and uh, an application there. So uh, these are the thoughts, the disputes, the dialogues, the, the, um, those kind of thoughts are the disputing thoughts. And they're going to be revealed. And the Word of God does that in time, Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God also does that in eternity. And uh, we can look forward to that as well. All right, Romans 14.1. I think it's a positive example, but maybe not. <laughs> now that I'm seeing how all the rest of these are negative, maybe I've got to rethink Romans 14.1. And I start to wonder, hmm, maybe there's something more to this than I've ever understood before. Romans 14.1 says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith. And we love this. This is a, a great verse. It's a great chapter, chapter 14 and 15 together, for how can we be relaxed, have grace towards one another. Accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his dialogismos, or plural, dialogismoi, his opinions. Don't pass judgment on his opinions. And I've always viewed that as on kind of a, on a neutral basis, because I've got opinions, I've got lots of opinions, you've got opinions, you've got lots of opinions. All right. And some opinions are good, and some opinions are not so good, Right. Some opinions are better grounded on facts and other opinions are not. But that's fine. All right. (laughs) 
I'm not passing judgment. And in particular, if in these chapters we're talking about non-sin issues, all right? Non-sin issues. And so do you drive a Ford or a Chevy? God doesn't care, neither do I. All right? Do you use Crest or Colgate, right? God doesn't care, neither do I. Whatever it is. We have, there's, there's, there's decisions we make. I call it the discretionary will of God because God leaves it within your discretion to do what you want. All right? And, uh, and things there. But, so no passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. So on the strength and weakness continuum, carnivores are strong and, and vegetarians are weak. Okay? Not my opinion, I'm just reading the verse. But the fact is that both groups have to have grace towards one another. Realizing that you've got a brother that's living out of faith conviction. So there you have it. Okay? And especially in the ancient world where that meat had been involved in idolatry and then the people want no part of that. Okay? Other people have the strength and, and the, the growth and maturity to say, big deal. Jesus Christ conquered those rulers and authorities at the cross. I'm an I'm a overcomer in Christ. Uh, to the victor go the spoils. I'm going to eat that meat. <laughs> okay? And that's uh, church age blessing. But now, having looked at all the rest of these dialogismas uses, I'm starting to ask myself, well, what if those opinions in 14.1 are actually pretty negative opinions? What if they're the, the carnal kind of disputes, the carnal kind of opinions, in which case we still have to have grace towards them. We still want to be uh, gracious towards them and accept them and be patient with them and let them grow through their blind spots while I grow through my blind spots. It's a curious thing to me. So it may not be as neutral or as positive as, uh, as I've thought through all these years. In any event, um, let's look at the verb. The verb is used 16 times. And, uh, and I think what I did too... I don't remember now. I think when I combined, I think I combined both terms together into that overall verse list. So Matthew 16, 7, and 8. And a lot of times you have a combination. You have the verb and the noun used in close proximity, which is a very Hebrew way to, to write. Uh, Matthew 16. We'll see some of these examples. Because we're told not to uh, grumble or dispute. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Matthew 16, 7 and 8. Jesus told them, watch out and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So they began to discuss this among themselves, saying, he said that because we did not bring any bread. <laughs> so that's their discussion. That's their dispute. That, that's their dialogue. They began to dialogue this among themselves. He said that because we didn't bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, you men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000? How many of those baskets you picked up? Or the seven loaves and the 4,000? And how many of the large baskets you picked up? Two separate events. And he uses both of them as the illustration here. Anyway, they've got their dialogue going on. And it's curious to me, when you are going to dialogue, <laughs> why do you choose the people you choose to? Why are they talking amongst themselves? He's right there. Go ask Jesus. Why is he saying that? Why would you say that, Lord? Okay. 
Eventually in the upper room, Peter finally said to, to John, John was across the table reclining on Jesus' breast, and Peter finally said, would you ask him what he's talking about? <laughs> so John was able to lean up there and, and ask him. Okay, But here, are they asking him? No. Why aren't they asking him? Because they prefer to grumble and, to, and dispute and talk amongst themselves. Well, why, why do that? Why are you avoiding the one person who is the authority, the one person who has the capacity to answer the question, and then start whispering? Okay, It's almost like uh, you know, one of those informal church committees that, that uh, they get together to talk about you know, how they can fix the pastor or you know, other things going on. Okay, Why are they talking amongst themselves? Um, chapter 21 and verse 25, Matthew 21, 25. chief priests, elders of the people, they corner him while he's teaching and they say, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? And Jesus said to them, all right, I will uh, ask you one thing, and if you answer me, then I'll tell you by what authority. (laughs) They're not going to (laughs) answer. They are not going to answer. Because he says, the baptism of John, was it from, from what source? Was it from heaven or was it from men? He says, if you answer that, then I'll answer your question. And you won't really have to, because if they answer that correctly, then they've already answered their question. They know his authority. Same as John's authority. So they began to reason, reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, then he'll say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, that doesn't help us either, because the people viewed John as a prophet. So now they're stuck. So answering Jesus, they said, we don't know. All right, then I'm not answering your question either. Then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Okay? But he already did. That's the beautiful thing. I'm a genius on his part. Because the fact that they won't answer the question answers the question. It's the same answer for John's authority. It's, it's from heaven. All right. Uh, Mark, go through a couple of these. Mark 2. I want to teach the Life of Christ series all over again. I tell you, it took 10 years to teach that. Harmony of the Gospels, 479 hours of teaching. Doug's going through them now on MP3. I miss it. All right, Mark 2, 6 and 8. So, um, Yeah, this is the neat. Uh, They lower the guy down through the roof. They couldn't get him in. The door was too crowded. They bring in this paralytic and they finally they remove the roof above him and they lowered him down. Dug an opening and let him down on the pallet which he was lying. And you talk about going the extra mile. Wow. And so Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way. He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right? Well, they answer their own question. And that's, uh, yes, testimony to his claim of deity. When he declares your sins forgiven, he is speaking on the basis of being God himself. And so immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why do you, 
why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? And uh, goes on to teach them the doctrine there related to that. Well, you know, what's easier to say? You know, you can say your sins are forgiven and there's no proof. No one can claim that he's a false prophet or a liar or anything. But then he says, rise up and walk. And there's proof. He rises up and he walks. He takes his pallet and goes home. So the one proves the other. It's a marvelous thing that, that Jesus does here. The uh, miracles are the credentials. They're the signs of his authority. The, it's the proof that he's sent from God. And, uh, and there you have it. Chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. It's a parallel to uh, the Matthew one that we read. They began to discuss with themselves that we didn't bring any bread. (laughs) All right. Uh, Chapter 9 and verse 33. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, what were you discussing on the way? (laughs) What were you talking about? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed which one of them was going to be the greatest. <laughs> so there's a dialogue you don't want to have. And they come into the house, and he says, what were you guys talking about out there? Yeah, nothing. Like asking your teenager, what were you doing? Nothing. All right. Chapter 11 and verse 31. Are any of these dialogues positive? I'm trying to find a good one. This is another repeat from Matthew. Uh, they have to reason among themselves because they can't answer his question. Luke one twenty nine. I should start marking those so I don't repeat those if they are synoptic parallels. Luke one twenty nine. I used to do that. I used to put a little superscript, a little A, B's and C's in there so I would would catch my eye and I wouldn't uh, turn there. Luke one twenty nine. Now, okay, here's a positive one. I, I guess she was pondering in her heart. Uh, here's a virgin. The angel shows up. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd ponder that. And um, greeting in, he said to her, "Greetings, favored one. Greetings, favored one. This is where Catholics get their hail Mary, full of grace kind of thing. Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you." But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept dialogizo, uh, pondering what kind of salutation this was. So if you're going to have a debate, just have it with yourself, <laughs> okay? And uh, ask yourself this, what kind of uh, expression is that? 3.15. All the people were in a state of expectation. They were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. And John answered and said to them, so they were wondering in their hearts, dialogizomai. They had this state of expectation. 521. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, who is this man who speaks blasphemies, who can forgive sins? Repeat from what we had before. 1217. Ah, here's a unique one, unique to Luke. This is the, um, I don't know, it's interesting. Um, 
verse 16. He told them a parable. The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Well, that's a lie. He does have a place to store his crops. He just can't store all his crops. The land was more productive than he anticipated, and he's got the barns aren't big enough. So, um, anyway, this is his reasoning to himself. So he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up. For... So he's, he's dialoguing with himself, he, even anticipating the conversation he's going to have when he's successful to uh, become a, a bigger miser, a bigger Scrooge, right? A bigger... Uh, you know, the, the idea is you have more than you need. You have more than you were prepared for. You have excess. What do you do with excess? Well, for some people, there's no such thing. That's not excess. I have inadequate barns. So he doesn't view it as an excess. He views it as, a, as, a, a, as an insufficiency. He's insufficient in his ability to hoard. So this is what he reasons to himself. So I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease. You'd think he could do that already if he's that rich. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. Now who will own what you have prepared? I use this in almost every funeral message. I use this in I preach this a lot at graveside services, church memorials. You don't want to be called a fool in the night that God calls you home. You want to be spiritually focused. But that's his uh, reasoning amongst himself. That's uh, Luke 11. Oh no, Luke 12, Luke 12, 17. Okay? And finally Luke 20 and verse 14. And this is the, the vineyard, and uh, he sends them these slaves, and uh, these workers are just uh, probably unionized, it looks like it. So he planted a vineyard, rented it out to vine growers, and went on a journey for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers, so they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. I mean, remember, whose vineyard is it? It's his. It, the, the workers don't own it, they work it. And they get paid for working it. It's not their vineyard. And uh, the produce belongs to him, not to them. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He proceeded to send another slave. They beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. Proceeded to send a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. And this is where the parable kind of breaks down a little bit because this landowner is kind of stupid. (laughs) Okay? And God's not stupid, but... Still, the parable teaches the one main primary point. It's an illustration for how faithful God is. So the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. And I want to raise my hand and say, don't do that, right? Stop. You're not that dumb. Come on. It's like the woman that had seven, was widowed seven times. You know, if I'm husband five, six, or seven, I'm catching on to that. I'm not, I'm not... I'm not doing that. 
but here's this landowner now, and I'm going to send my son. They will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another. And that's our term. Dia lagizamai. They reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. Now, does that make any sense? If I go and murder some rich guy's heir, do I automatically become the heir for. Yeah, I, I don't That's. But see, how, we've been discussing this. It's just as rational as dreaming about those pots of meat back in Egypt. Saying, hey, you know, we had it made back in Egypt. There is nothing rational about rebellion against the plan of God. It's, it's spiritual, it's emotional, it's not rational. And uh, to me it's curious because they can be irrationally reasoning here. <laughs> reasoning with one another. And, uh, you know, two illogical people can agree on each other's illogic. And it makes perfect sense to them. You get a couple of evolutionists together and they can debate Big Bang for hours and hours and it makes perfect sense to them. And so uh, there they have it. So we don't want to grumble and we don't want to dialogue. We don't want to reason. We don't want to rationalize with God against why He's wrong and why we think our plan is better. Why He's wrong, as Job tried to do, to say, you know what, I, I didn't deserve this. He wanted to go argue his case. He just couldn't get to heaven to, to present it. And so there really is no clear uh, Septuagint allusion or passage that this alludes to. There's no great dialogue text from, uh, from the Old Testament to adapt. All right. Point five. Grumble-free service has temporal and eternal benefits. Grumble-free service has temporal, that's within the bounds of time, and eternal benefits. Both temporal and eternal benefits. I lost Philippians. There it is. And I've already read them at the start of this hour, verses 15 and 16. It has to do with a display. has to do with a proof as we prove ourselves to be um, blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. All of those are benefits. There's multiple benefits right there in verse thir- uh, 15. For our benefits in terms of our testimony, benefits in terms of, of the capacity we have to communicate truth. And then holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ we have a focus on the coming rapture. If you, uh, look back to chapter 1 and verse 10. We had this reference already to the day of Christ. Remember this? This is his prayer. It says in verse 8, God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this morning we were talking about affection at prayer meeting and, and how do we show affection And to whom do we show affection? To what do we show affection? And is affection the same as fellowship? So ask me about that during the break. Um, This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. That's epinosis and all discernment. So that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. And so sincere and blameless on the day of Christ. And here we have 
um, sincere and blameless on the day of Christ. Uh, blameless and innocent in the midst of the crooked and perverse generation. All right. But that day of Christ, remember the day of Christ? That's rapture. That's the glorious day we're looking forward to at the conclusion of the church age. It is not the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is blood and sun, moon, and stars falling and judgment and wrath and smoke and demons and all kinds of hell on earth. The day of the Lord is judgment. The day of Christ is blessing. The day of Christ is what we have to look forward to. The day of Christ is, is the body of Christ being caught up and taken to heaven. And so uh, don't, uh, don't confuse those days. So in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. And that's what we have here in verse 16 of chapter 2. Holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory. So each believer has something to look forward to at the Bema seat. Each believer has something to look forward to uh, in terms of the reward, the well done, good and faithful servant. But not only that, not only on an individual basis is it, uh, is it good news, but also secondhand, also third party blessings on the part, I believe, uh, as Paul reflects it here, on the part of those that you minister towards, all right? And that would be more than just the pastor to his flock. Patients to uh, parents to children, evangelists to uh, the evangelized. I mean, if you have any kind of ministry, if you're a Sunday school teacher and you are pouring out your ministry to those children and you watch them stand at the judgment seat of Christ with full reward, is that going to give you a, a joy? Are you going to have joy watching those children rewarded? Of course. So that I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. When you have a, a victorious believer, the judgment seat of Christ, and, and part of what they are being rewarded for is what you blessed them with, that's a thrill. That's a crown. Paul describes it as a crown. A crown of exaltation. Here he calls it a reason for glory. So there's temporal benefits, there's eternal benefits. And on Wednesday we're going to talk about this because the present testimony <clears throat> is that you know, being a light in, the, in a dark place um, is, is a blessing. But it's also a, a target. Right? Why do, you think, uh, why do you think you have light discipline in combat? Why do you think uh, when, you know, when on the West Coast, maybe you did in Texas too, I don't know, but on the West Coast during World War II we had complete blackouts. We didn't want uh, the cities to be identified from the air. We didn't want to be, it was a bombing thing, right? And so the, you, you darkened everything. Uh, if, you know, if, if there's somebody out there hunting you, you don't turn on your flashlight so they can see where you are. Except if you're a light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Then you shine that light brighter than anything and say, here I am. Okay? I'm a target for your criticism, your attack, your mocking, your scorn, your persecution, whatever, but I'm still a light. So you can come to the light. All right. Father, I thank you for this message. I thank you for the admonishments. Um, Father, don't let this uh, doctrine just be a, an academic thing that fills notebooks, but let it have a, an impact in our soul and our thinking that uh, we can stop the grumbling, we can stop the dialoguing, the disputing. Father, uh, just uh, work in us to improve in the realms of uh, fear and trembling 
so that we can uh, make these applications in such a way that your son gets all the glory. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.